Brian Barnett is just a regular guy. He's not a doctor. He has no legal license in any field of mental or emotional health. Brian Barnett merely shares the insights he's gained from his personal experiences for anybody who may choose to use such information as he or she personally chooses, while accepting full responsibility for his or her own individual thoughts, feelings, behaviors, and actions. Brian Barnett assumes no responsibility whatsoever for anybody's individual choice to expose himself or herself to any information that Brian Barnett shares. And by listening to this program, you're acknowledging that you, and only you, are responsible for your own thoughts, feelings, and actions. Happy Thursday, everybody. Welcome back to The Last Symptom. I'm Brian Barnett, the creator and host, and I'm talking to you tonight from uh, my new studio space. Some of you might remember that uh, not long ago I mentioned that I was moving, and that has finally happened. It happened this past week, so I'm in my new space, got a new studio here, and uh, I'm hoping to set it up so that eventually I can do some more videos and that sort of thing. I'm going to try to invest in a better camera and learn how to, to, to upload these videos with a better image because when I've tried uploading videos in the past, something happens. I mean, I, I can record the thing. 4K, high definition, and when I upload it to YouTube, something happens in that transfer where the image suddenly is not, is not crisp. And I've noticed that other people who do videos are able to get the, the 4K, high definition on there, and I'm just not sure how they're doing it. So I'm going to have to ask around about that and figure out how that's working. But that is something that I'd like to do here soon, and I've got a few other ideas in I'm kicking around. One difference that you might notice moving forward, and I'm not totally certain about this, but it's something that's on my mind, is that uh, you might start seeing the episode of The Last Symptom Podcast publish on Thursday evenings rather than Thursday during the day. And uh, that's just a result of kind of a, a change in my schedule, in my personal schedule. But we'll also, we'll see how that goes. I like doing it on Thursdays. Thursdays works well for me. We'll just see how it goes. How are you guys all doing? I hope you're all doing well out there, despite world events. Kind of a historical moment we're living through, you know? And, uh, you know, you can use it to be anxious and, and fearful. And I recognize that some people have more reason to, to be anxious and fearful than others of us do. Uh, my purpose for mentioning that is not to bring everybody down. Just, you know, that's one of the realities of this thing we're dealing with. Most of us, the vast majority of us, are going to be just fine from this thing. So I noticed that uh, uptown here, where I live, all the restaurants are closed down. So there's no in there, there's no dining in the restaurants here currently. And that's supposed to go on for the next, I reckon, eight weeks or so. But I mean, I can still go through the drive through I can still go right through the drive-thru and pick up my hamburger. And for those of you who don't know what a drive-thru is, <laughs> let me tell you, the reason I figured out that the whole world doesn't have drive throughs is that years ago, and not too many years ago, but a few years ago, uh, I was backpacking a portion of the Appalachian Trail out in Pennsylvania. 
and it was the section between PA 309 and Port Clinton. So all you folks out there in PA, that'll give you an idea where I was. And on the first night of the trail, my buddies and I were setting up camp, and this feller comes wandering into our camp, and it turned out that he was an Israeli. He was visiting from Israel for the express purpose of backpacking the Appalachian Trail. And it was between that time where he was out of school and he was about to go into compulsory military service. So his last hurrah, I, I guess you'd call it, before going into his military service was to go uh, backpack a portion of the Appalachian Trail. Anyway, we kind of adopted him into our group. Uh, Boaz was his name. And one thing I remember about Boaz, this was right in uh, October. Boaz was sleeping with his food. And so when we all set up camp that night, I mean, we were all getting ready to go to bed. Boaz, you know, had his food bag there. He was going to use it as a pillow. And I said to him, you're not going to sleep with your food, are you? He said, well, why not? I said, Boaz, (laughs) we're going into winter. All the bears around here are trying to fatten themselves up before cold weather sets in and they have to go into hibernation. And you're telling me that you're going to sleep here with your food bag as your pillow? Well, I don't think so, buddy. So we told him, yeah, if you're going to sleep with your food, you're not staying with us. So we made him go hang up his food. And sure enough, after he split up from us a couple weeks later, uh, he was backpacking along, I think, in Virginia. And he come up on some bears and then had some bears come into his camp late at night one night. And uh, he called me up and he said, boy, you, you probably saved my life. I said, yeah, I probably, well, I, I probably saved our lives, but <laughs> we saved your life as a, <laughs> as a happy uh, add-on. <laughs> but anyway, we took him, after we adopted him into our group, we took him out to get some fast food once we hit the end of the trail. And we were going through a Wendy's, a Wendy's fast food restaurant. And as we were driving through the drive-thru, he says, what, what is this? What is this? We said, well, what's what? What, what? what is it? They, you pay here? They give you the food? Like, yeah, that's, that's the way a drive-thru works. You guys don't have drive throughs in Israel? So apparently they don't. But So that's what a drive-thru is for uh, my listeners who are not here in the United States or are in areas where you don't have drive throughs Here in the the promised land that is America. Uh, We get fat because we don't even have to get out of our cars to pay for our food and receive our food. We even start eating our food as we're driving out of the drive-through. That's how uh, lazy we are. So that's a drive-through. All those are still open. And um, so that's what's going on here in my little town. Let me tell you one more uh, funny story about Boaz before I move on. That first night that he was in, that he spent with us out in the woods, um, <laughs> I was right on the verge of falling asleep. I mean, I was worn out. We'd had like a 12-hour day, you know. I don't remember how many miles we did, but it was a long day. And I was just about to pass out a line there. And uh, in the dark, you have to, you know, I got to set this up so you can imagine it just right. We're, li- we're all lying there in the dark woods fire crackling off in the distance it's getting quiet we're all falling asleep and then Boaz's voice breaks the the darkness and the silence and he says uh, 
Hey, can I ask you a question? Remember, I do accents terribly, but th this is my Israeli accent. And you Israelis, you can, you know, you can slap me upside the head when you see me. I give you permission. Uh, he says, hey, can I ask you a question? And uh, I said, yeah, yeah sure. What, what is it, Boaz? He says, uh, well, I'm just curious. So let me get this straight. If I commit a murder in a state that does not have the death penalty, can they give me the death penalty? And I said, uh, well, no, not if that's a state that uh, doesn't have the death penalty. All right, good night, Boaz. And I start to roll over. He says, uh, excuse me, just one more question. He says, let's say I commit a murder in a state that does have the death penalty, but then I flee to a state that does not have the death penalty. Uh, well, they'll probably extradite you back to the state where the murder occurred. That's probably where they're going to try you, Boaz. Well, good night, Boaz. He says, okay, thank you. Good night. I thought nothing about it. <laughs> Sleeping here with a total stranger next to me who's asking questions like that. So the next morning, I'm taking a piss over at the edge of the woods, and my brother comes over to me, and he says, how'd you sleep last night? I said, well, I slept fine. How'd you sleep? He said, man, when Boaz started asking about murders and, and uh, laws here in the United States and everything, he said, I got out my knife, <laughs> about a six-inch hunting knife. <laughs> he said, I just clutched it there to my chest. And he said, I lie there awake half the night wondering why he's asking these sorts of questions right before we're about to go to sleep. He said, I, sl I slept with my knife on my chest just in case I needed it. Oh, man, I that I laughed so hard at that. And, you know, looking back, it probably would have concerned me, too, if I if I weren't just so darn, darn tired. I mean, I was just wiped out. I was pooped. He probably could have killed me in my sleep. I probably wouldn't have even cared. I probably wouldn't even felt it. So there's my Boaz stories, and uh, hopefully that gives you a chuckle or two in these times of serious uh, anxiety regarding coronavirus. And there's a little update on my life here in my little town. I hope you're all staying safe out there. Don't, well, just be be wise about how you consume news. You know, stay on top of things, but don't overdo it. You know, I do a little bit of reading in the morning. I try to catch the uh, the virus task force, I guess they're calling it here in the States. They do like a presser every day. I try to catch that around noon, but after that, I turn the TV off and I, I stop reading the news for the most part. I get my mind involved with other things. Now, to get into today's topic, first of all, I have to mention thelastsymptom.com. I say I have to mention it because uh, the traffic that goes through there and the donations and the, the consults that it generates are what allow me to do this work at all. So uh, I appreciate you bearing with me every week when I throw that in your face, thelastsymptom.com. Right from the site, you can donate if you'd like to support my work that way. If, you know, you're not able to donate, there's other ways that you can support my work. And a great way of doing that is go onto iTunes, write a review, write a positive review for this show on iTunes. You don't understand how much I appreciate that and how uh, much good that does for allowing my work to continue. Giving me five stars or six stars or how many ever it is, that's nice. But if you can take a few minutes and, and write me a positive review, that's even better. 
Let's get into some conversations today about emotional health. I asked my, my followers to participate in an exercise with me. Now, I have not personally provided an answer for this exercise. I presented a question. I asked people to comment on it. And I haven't thrown my answer or my part of this conversation into the ring yet. I just wanted to see what other people had to say. So I'm going to offer the question to you. It can be something that you think about over the next couple weeks. I'm going to share some of the responses I got for this question. And uh, maybe in a couple weeks on this show, I will share my insights related to this question that I presented to my group. So here's the post that I made. An exercise for discussion while we're all staying indoors, avoiding breathing on other people. Why will you never catch emotionally healthy adults saying things like, it's not my fault, and that's not fair? Notice that the question is not if these sorts of statements reflect emotional unhealth. The question is why do they reflect emotional unhealth, and why, therefore, do emotionally healthy adults never say these sorts of things? Here was some of the feedback that I got from my group members that I appreciated. One person says, because emotionally healthy people are not used to being blamed for things that aren't their fault, so they don't have any need to say these things. Somebody else said, because they know what they are responsible for and what they are not responsible for. Somebody else had this to say, emotionally healthy people can self-reflect, and if someone comments on their behavior, they think about why a person may have commented and try to see it from their point of view. They also own their behaviors. I did do such and such, and I'm sorry it had this impact on you. From now on, I'll do such and such. This person says, it's not my fault, and that's not fair. Our normal teenage reactions to when faced with personal responsibility. Another person said, emotionally healthy people don't equate the slightest criticism with, oh, they found out I'm completely worthless. This person here says, uh, the not fair response assumes that there is a right way or a way things should be. It does two emotionally unhealthy things at once. First, it gives someone else the responsibility to fix whatever is not fair, limiting my own agency and choice. Second, it is manipulative in the assumption that there is a way the world must work so that I'll be happy, like a toddler, teenager, or, or many adults even, throwing a temper tantrum for not getting their way. The opposite healthy response is recognizing that things do not always go the way I want them to, and sometimes there's injustice and hurt in the world. Not seeking fairness recognizes my own responsibility and allows others to be responsible for their own choices. The most unfair thing that happens are wounds that are inflicted by others, knowingly or obviously. Yet the only way to heal from emotional wounds is to stop blaming and take responsibility for my own thoughts and feelings, to work on myself so I can heal. 
Continuing to complain to the vast expanse, not fair, keeps me stuck looking for someone else to solve my problems for me, which will never happen. Uh, This person contributed this to the conversation. Personal responsibility has always been the hallmark of adulthood. We used to leave our parents at 18 and venture into the world, assuming no one had our backs but us. Not so much anymore, and it shows up in those two statements. And the last one I'll read for today says, uh, this person says, I think it's because emotionally healthy people don't look at the world as either fair or unfair. Life is neither fair nor unfair. It's just life. Emotionally healthy people know that telling someone that it's not their fault will not convince the people accusing them of something if they're really not at fault. So those were some really great contributions to that conversation. So I wanted to present the question to you. We'll come back to it maybe later, if I remember and don't forget to include it in a future show. And with that, let's get into today's main topic. Why do some cases of borderline personality disorder seem to not involve parents? This is available as an article over in the article library at thelastsymptom.com. But as with most of my articles, I like to... uh, Turn them into audio versions here for folks who learn better by listening. Well, when a person asks a question like, why does it seem like some parents are not involved? They are correct. They only do not seem to be involved, but they are involved. The primary reasons for parents not seeming to be involved with their children's borderline personality disorder, is denial and ignorance. The children are in denial because they have an emotional aversion to seeing their parents in any way that makes the children emotionally uncomfortable. And the children, frankly, wouldn't know what they're seeing anyway without some sort of reference. It doesn't matter if they're 50 years old. They wouldn't know what they're seeing without some sort of reference or somebody to help them put things into context. Also, a major problem here is that most therapists and psychologists do not seem to be insightful enough to both look through the denials of their clients and the work to help their clients see the true nature of that relationship and redefine it. So what happens is that the children speak of their parents in reverent, affectionate terms, and they paint a picture of them as only loving and caring. And the therapist incompetently takes this at face value. The therapist then goes on to write a book about how many of her patients with borderline personality disorder have had wonderful upbringings. So borderline personality disorder must have multiple possible causes and similar bullshit to this. So the only thing that's happening here is that the therapist does not have the insight to understand that it is impossible that the parents were emotionally healthy and therefore completely reject her client's assertions from the very start on the basis that the client is both in denial and ignorant. In other words, couldn't recognize the types of abuse we're talking about, even if they wanted to. And then do the work, the therapist that is, 
to dig deeper below the surface to truly analyze the subtleties of her client's relationship with his or her parents and then help her client to see this for himself or herself and redefine those relationships. Now, pay attention to what I'm going to say here and give some real thought to it. In the vast majority of cases, the cause of borderline personality disorder does not involve dramatic, obvious abuse. Instead, in by far the greatest majority of cases, the cause involves subtle abuse, so subtle that I can't even properly convey the level of subtlety to you. By the way, the children aren't lying to the therapist. They truly do remember and view their parents as the model of what good parenting is. But they simply don't know anything else. They have no healthy point of reference. During childhood, our family bubble is the entire universe for us. And whatever realities exist within that bubble, you don't simply perceive them as your family's way, your family's way of doing things. No, that comes later. But by the time you begin to question certain aspects of your family realities, the damage is already done. Certain perceptions, you see, are already cemented into place. For a long time, the realities inside your family bubble define not just the realities of your life, but reality in general for you. That is the broader reality of the nature of, of the entire world around you. For those of you who are just now joining me, let me explain that I myself had borderline personality disorder unaware until I was at least 35 years old. Over the course of roughly seven years, I managed to authentically rid myself of the disorder once and for all. During that process, I myself had to escape my own denial and ignorance in this particular aspect of the disorder. That is to say, I also viewed my parents as being wonderful parents. And if somebody had told me that my parents were unhealthy and abusive... I would have rejected this thought outright. It would have made me angry to hear such such ridiculous things from people who couldn't possibly know what it was like to be raised by my parents. But now on the other side of recovery, not only has my entire view of my parents changed, you know, I can clearly see now the myriad of ways that I was mistreated and abused in very subtle ways and some dramatic ways, which I was completely blind to for over 30 years. I was completely blind to it. And I'm also now the person trying to help others escape the same denial and ignorance that I was experiencing. It's a massive hurdle, for sure. But it is a hurdle that must be overcome if a person's to have any hope to be rid of borderline personality disorder for real. For real, not for pretend, not for just managing symptoms or using a bag full of tricks to calm yourself and keep yourself in check, white knuckle forever and ever for the rest of all time. I'm talking about true recovery, completely being rid of the disorder. Now, back to the fact that we're dealing with things of an infinitesimally subtle nature. 
What is the true cause of borderline personality? What is the thing that parents do that cause their children to develop borderline personality disorder in the first place? It's their unhealthy attitudes. Attitudes. It's their unhealthy attitudes which communicate the idea that their children's feelings are irrelevant. Now, notice what I did not just say. I did not just say trauma. Trauma is not the cause of borderline personality disorder. The true cause of borderline personality disorder is what I just told you it is. The unhealthy attitudes of our parents, which communicate the idea that our feelings are irrelevant and devoid of inherent worth. Now, people will get in an uproar. They'll say, that's not true. I was raped. I was beaten. I was chained to a wall in a basement. Well, that's true. Some of you with borderline personality disorder were. But not all of you with borderline personality disorder were. In fact, not even the majority of you with borderline personality disorder were. The rest of us had wonderful parents, remember? But before we move on, let me ask you this. What allowed your parents to rape you, beat you, and chain you to a wall in a basement in the first place if it wasn't for their unhealthy attitudes? Also, what message did being raped, beaten, and chained in the basement communicate to you? It communicated to you the same message my wonderful parents communicated to me in infinitesimally more subtle ways. Your feelings are irrelevant. After all, if your feelings mattered, would you have ever been raped, beaten, chained? No, you wouldn't have been. The trauma part of this is a decoy duck. And the professional community as a group does not seem to have the insight to understand this. Instead, they focus exclusively on this decoy duck, and they beat it like a dead horse. The only relevant thing is what trauma communicated and how it was allowed to happen at all. And the way it was allowed to happen at all was because of your parents' unhealthy, underlying attitudes. Now, let me ask you this. Do our parents have to rape us, beat us, or chain us to walls to communicate that our feelings are irrelevant? No, of course not. They only have to live with an unhealthy perspective of feelings themselves. Did you catch what I just said? Parents merely have to live with the perspective on some level that feelings are irrelevant. And this is enough in itself to cause their children to develop borderline personality disorder. Their unhealthy attitude on this one aspect of life is enough. Children adopt their own perspectives. You know, when, we're, when we were kids, we adopted our own perspectives by observing our parents' attitudes and the messages that those attitudes convey. 
The mother who sweetly and consistently tells her daughter things like, don't cry, and while laughing says, that's nothing to be scared about, is communicating the exact same message as the mother who mercilessly beats her children for crying. The father who views his children's feelings as a personal affront and gets upset or offended at them for what they feel is carrying around the same unhealthy underlying attitude as the parent who burns his children with cigarettes. Your feelings don't matter. You are feeling the wrong thing. Your feelings bother me. I very frequently tell people that abuse, even when it is done sweetly, is still abuse. Just because it's done with a smile and a soft tone of voice does not magically transform abuse into something else. Do you remember how I said that all this involves very subtle things? Well, that's one of them. Figuring out when you were being abused, when you couldn't even perceive that you were being abused because it was done with a smile and a soft tone of voice. Communicating unhealthy messages about children's feelings to them through improper attitudes is abuse. It doesn't have to be accompanied by a cigarette burn or a slap in order to be abuse. The messages communicated in the unhealthy attitudes themselves is abuse. Not all parents who raise children to have borderline personality disorder traumatize their children with dramatic instances of physical traumatic abuse. But, but, all parents who raise children to have borderline personality disorder do have unhealthy attitudes about the nature of feelings. It's your parents' unhealthy attitudes toward feelings which are the key to understanding and eventually ridding yourself of borderline personality disorder, not trauma. If you live with borderline personality disorder, but you're currently unable to see how your parents are responsible in this way, I assure you that your parents are not the magical exception. There is no other possibility. Your parents are responsible for the disorder you live with. You're either in denial about the role they played or you're ignorant, meaning that you need somebody else's help to identify the subtle ways they reflect unhealthy, improper, underlying attitudes. How they've been communicating those unhealthy attitudes to you for your entire life and the ways in which the messages in these unhealthy attitudes have powerfully and negatively affected you. My work here is designed to help you break through this denial and ignorance. So I hope you keep up with it. Ladies and gentlemen, that's the show. Bear with me again, as I mentioned, thelastsymptom.com. If you get the, the hankering to do so, please leave me a donation. And um, I appreciate those donations very much. They allow me to keep doing the show every week and continuing to try to broaden the services that I offer. While you're there at thelastsymptom.com, you could schedule a one-on-one -on -one appointment with me, a one-hour phone conversation, and maybe I can help you figure some things out. 
And that brings us to a part of the show that I like to call the encouraging finale. In Rome, the Catholic Pope bought a brand new limousine. And the first time he saw it, he said, my goodness, that is a good looking car. And the chauffeur said, well, hop in, I'll give you a ride. So the Pope got in the back and they started driving down the road. And the Pope called up to the front seat to the chauffeur. And he said, man, this thing really drives smooth. And the chauffeur said, well, I'm glad you like it, your holiness. The Pope said, pull over here for a second. So the driver did. The Pope walked up to the front of the car and said to the chauffeur, man, you know what? I spent so much for this car. And it's such a nice car, I'd like to drive for a little bit, so why don't you get in the back for a little while? And the chauffeur said, well, okay, your holiness. And the chauffeur got in the back, and the Pope got in the front, and they started driving down the road. Well, the car drove so smoothly that before he knew it, the Pope was driving over the speed limit, and a police officer pulled him over. officer took one look at him and he said oh uh ex- excuse me just a second so police officer goes back to his motorcycle calls up the chief over at the at headquarters and he says chief i i just pulled somebody over that's pretty important and i'm just not sure what to do about it and the chief said well how important is he is he is he as important as the president just stop beating around the bush officer just tell me who it is and the police officer said sir I don't know who it is, but he's got the Pope driving him around. 